Data science and user research. On the surface, these terms feel like they're poles apart. However, the teaming up of these domains can create magic of an unheard kind. This is exactly what Grishma Jaina does at IBM. As a data scientist, Grishma helps user research teams navigate efficiently. The qualitative nuances of user interviews combined with a bird's eye view of data paints a truthful and a clear picture. In this episode, she dissects her role as a data scientist in research ops and what principles of data science can smaller organizations apply in user research. So let's dive right in. Welcome to the show, Grishma. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, means a lot. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the kind of stories, knowledge and insights you're going to share because this domain is pretty alien to me. And that is of using data science in user research and user research operations. I mean, um, when I first read about what you do, I was really blown away. I was like, oh my God, this is a behemoth I just know the tale of. I mean, I have just been doing qualitative research and qualitative analysis. And I was like, okay, this is what it is about. And I also did quantitative through surveys, but... Again, that was very restricted. But when data science comes in, that is a lot of data we are talking about. And if user research gets that power of processing and understanding that much data, along with the qualitative nuances that we have, uh, the power of it becomes like, boom, I, I can't even describe it. So mind-blowing. So yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Yeah, firstly, thank you so much, Sweet for inviting me. And uh, it's a pleasure. I really like talking about the kind of work we do here at IBM. And uh, I think a lot of people, when they find out that I'm a data scientist working with user research or in research operations, they keep asking me, what exactly is it that I do? And I think this was kind of, uh, you know, our conversation as well. So I'm happy to be here, to be on the stage and to just talk to more people and hopefully encourage some data scientists to get into user research and maybe some user research to pick up a bit of data science methods as well. That is what my first question was going to be, just to break down and explain your role as a data scientist in user research team at IBM. So these are a lot of big terms that we are using. What is it? Like, just break it down for us. Absolutely. So I work as a data scientist with the user research operations team for IBM software. I'm one data scientist that supports our larger team of about 100 user researchers. So it's a very interesting and challenging role, I would say. But in terms of the kind of responsibilities I have, I would say there are three main responsibilities. The first one is that we are creating and maintaining a repository of user research findings and client insights. So one part of it is we are focusing on, okay, we have all of these hundred user researchers doing a lot of wonderful work, but sometimes it's hold away in folders, which maybe nobody always access, or if people leave, then, you know, it's this whole question of who has access to this, or this link is broken. How do we know what work was done in this in the past two years? So we're trying to create a central place where we can have all of these user research findings, and then we can try to socialize that with the rest of the company as well. Um, the second part of it is uh, more of a voice of the customer uh, product, which is trying to look at different sources of user feedback. So it could be internal source, it could be an external source, but instead of going to 10 different places to see what users are talking about, we're again trying to have one source of truth. So product teams can just go quickly and see, okay, what is it that my users are talking about today? Okay, this past quarter, what are the top five things that are their pain points? What are the things we should put on the roadmap? So just kind of empowering our product teams and um, hopefully helping our users have a better experience. So that's the goal of this entire effort. Um, the second one is kind of acting as an internal consultant. A lot of the times user researchers will come up to me saying, hey, we're trying to do this project and we're looking for this kind of data. Do you have any idea? So then I kind of go on this treasure hunt of, okay, let's see what are the two, three top sources I can find for them and then help them analyze it. Maybe the data is not available. Maybe I need to go and extract it from websites or a database. So just doing that entire consultancy almost um, with the user researchers, which obviously depends on you know the objective that they have of that project. 
and then um and that could also include you know creating dashboards or doing a competitive analysis all of that and then finally since i I'm kind of the resident data scientist for our design and user research teams. A lot of the times they will come up to me saying, hey, this is a product we're trying to market to data scientists. As a data scientist, what do you think of this? What do you think of this mock-up? Do you like this feature, this functionality? Or a lot of the times um, I'll be using those tools in my workflow, like for example, Watson Studio or you know, Knowledge Catalog. And then I'll go to the teams and saying, hey, the documentation of this is a little confusing. Can we improve it? Or I really like this feature, but it seems a little incomplete because this aspect is not there. So just kind of having that two-way collaboration where I'm almost a sponsor user for them, except I'm an internal sponsor user. So mm -hmm. that's a bit of my role. Um, definitely consider myself to be primarily a data scientist, but at times I also end up doing um, software engineering, data engineering, and then helping a bit with design, content design, and all of that. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Um, we all end up becoming something or the other at some point of time, especially when you're working in the research team, because you have to facilitate so many other teams that you have to become part of that team every day in some form or the other. So one thing I find really interesting is that um, IBM creating its own internal repository, its in-house repository. Um, but at the same time, there are so many other repository tools that have come up in the market. So what was the need that led to creating an in-house repository rather than using all these tools that are out there? That's a great question, Sukriti, and something that we also had to think of because there's always this buy versus make, you know, <laughs> struggle going on. Um, I think when we started our team in 2020, we did a survey of all of the different repository tools that are available. And since that was two years ago, uh, you know, I think the market was much smaller then and the functionalities was also not as much as it is today. Um, we did a thorough analysis and honestly, the issue that happened was that we had a list of criteria that we wanted to be met and none of the tools that were available on the market then were able to meet 100% or even like 80 or 90% of the criteria. That was one. Um, the second one was um, since we are such a big company and we are always dealing with, you know, these different products, IBM Software itself, we have around 80, 85 different products just under our user research team. Now, each of those separate product teams have a lot of different tools and processes that they are using. So we wanted something that would integrate very well with all of these different tools that maybe our marketing folks are using or our sales team is using. At that time, we did not really find any integration uh, capability or the kind of advanced integration capability we wanted in any repository. And then finally, I guess um, we wanted a lot of control over what kind of features would exist in the repository, um, how the maintenance of it would be done, how the look and feel, since at the end of the day, we are a user research and design team. So we definitely get judged on the presentation and look and feel and a smooth user experience. And what happened uh, was that we could have really pretty repository tools off the shelf, but then they wouldn't be very good at the integration capability or giving us access to APIs. Or on the other hand, we have tools that are very powerful in terms of their APIs, integrations, automation, but they didn't look as good. So mm -hmm. for us, we thought, you know, instead of trying to struggle and maybe have two or three things that we have to anyway put together, let's come up with our own solution of an internal repository that we can control, we can manage, we take full ownership of, and then with our stakeholders, we can, you know, work to change the look and feel or the functionality whenever we need. You know, the story of making your own research repository is really optimistic and hopeful for me because as a user researcher, I also feel that whenever I'm using another repository products that it this is what is missing. I wish there it was there or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, the entire process of making from scratch seems so... I don't know, scary and uh, time consuming. So it would be great if you could shed some light on your process of making a repository, maybe not the technicality of it, but how much time did it take? And what are what were the challenges that you faced? And how did you overcome them? 
so that if someone is feeling what I am feeling about repositories, maybe they can even think about this option of making an in-house repository if they have the, those kind of resources. Absolutely. It is a challenging effort. I won't deny that. Um, even where we are today, it's taken two years to be here and we are not even close to being done. So I feel like it's one of those things that is always ongoing, right? Um, in terms of time, um, like I mentioned, our team started early 2020. So right at the start of the pandemic, um, I haven't still met all of my team members in person, which is a little strange. Uh, but we started with a team of three of us, my manager, me and another colleague of mine. And what happened for almost the first year or more was we are trying to do what we can do best in terms of the tools that we already have, the processes that are already in place. And think of incremental small steps that you can take. So you can go from not documenting any data at all to having an internal repository that's well-functioning in a year. Even a year's time is it's very difficult unless you have maybe 100 people working on it all the time. Um, so for us, what we did was we identified, we first did an internal survey of our researchers to understand what are their top pain points. Is it with documenting the data? Is it with able to share the ability to share it with the stakeholders, what they are finding? Is it more of, oh, we keep doing these, this research again and again, and it becomes repetitive because we didn't know that another team did the same research a month ago. So just trying to understand where exactly is the problem with sharing, with organizing, with publicizing, with access. And once we did that, then we started thinking, okay, what is the next biggest step we can take in terms of this? For example, a lot of people had problems with sharing or not having the right access links. So that could be as simple as putting out a document or some sort of a playbook on our website, which says, hey, whenever you share document, uh, any document or any research findings, this is the format you should follow. This is the template we have. And make sure that in your access link, these are the ways you have set the permissions so everybody can access. Again, really simple, start basic. Um, after a year is when our team expanded and that's when we actually broke out into different squads because then each of our squads had around two to three members. So we have one tech and inside squad that is functioning more about how do you develop the software for the uh, repository? How do you keep sure the infrastructure is running and fine? Um, then we had another squad that's focusing on design practices, which is more of how do we make sure that our researchers are feeling that they have some eminence, that they are developing and honing their craft, but also going outside of IBM or outside of our teams and telling, hey, you know, this is the kind of work I do, and just making sure that they're publicizing their work. Um, we have another squad that is specific for participant and recruitment that talks more into how do we set up schedule, how do we schedule sessions with our participants, how do we make sure that we are getting access to the right participants for the right projects and making sure that our user researchers know how to ask the questions. And then finally, we have one more squad for tooling and enablement, because as you probably know, there are so many tools in the market coming out every day, right? So they are just doing a continuous assessment of what is the right tool for us or what are the tools that our user researchers aren't happy with, or there's a gap in our tool stack. So it's really more of a very lengthy process. It needs a lot of perseverance, a lot of patience, but I would say look at the top pain points that your researchers have as far as a repository is concerned, and then think about what are the bare minimum steps you can take. Now, yes, having a polished repository or database would be the best, but if you don't have that, see if you can start with just a file of Excel spreadsheets. If you don't have that, see if you can just start with a file of Word documents or box notes. If you don't have that, see if you can just start with telling researchers, let's start tracking that data somewhere. It can be on our computer, it can be in handwritten notes. We're just trying to gradually introduce people into the concept of we need to capture data, we need to form insights, and then we'll see how to bring that into a repository. I think that's very important. Like this entire story that you told, I feel now that startups and many organizations are recognizing the importance of user research, it was already there in many big organizations like Microsoft, Google. It wasn't a problem there. In fact, they can manage to have such huge in-house repositories, maybe even IBM. But this could be helpful for those lead user researchers leading 
user research in startups and it can be a vision for them in the coming years that when their startup finally blooms of all those who survive <laughs> and uh, then they can establish something like this because yeah this uh, absolutely sounds very personalized according to the company's cultures and needs so yeah that would obviously be very helpful thank you for laying it out and opening it for us yeah, it was great hearing it so another thing that i wanted to talk about is that you know in the, in the last call we had together you mentioned that you deal with a lot of textual data and in large amounts and this can be from any source like maybe social media or maybe your chatbot so which textual data capturing methods have been consistently helpful to you when it comes to honest and most transformative insights in your company what has been your experience been like of handling so much textual data and just playing with it and then presenting it at the best way possible yeah i think uh, i have had so many experiences different experiences with textual data i'll i'll see if i can generalize it but one thing i think that is with data sciences and it's sort of an inside joke in the data science world is that ask us any question the answer will always be it depends it depends on the problem statement it depends on the objective it depends on the data it depends on how much time we have so i think that is one thing that just the nature of data science is it's very uncertain you know as opposed to software engineering where you can come up to a software engineer and say you have 3 months this is the spec this is the requirements this is what we want the end product to look like and it would happen but when you talk about data science um i could have 3 months and i could have the most amazing analysis i could do because the data is in the right format the data is there or you could give me one year and all i could say is that hey sorry we don't have enough data or even if we do have data the results are inconclusive so i guess the first thing is just kind of accepting that there's always going to be some uncertainty that that comes with you know doing data science tasks in terms of textual data honestly it really depends on the quality of the data you could not have data number 1 in which case you can't do anything or you could have data but it could be really sparse or invalid or things don't make sense or you could have data that is not in a standardized format let's say everybody has their own notes somebody's writing it in you know paper somebody's writing it in keynote somebody's storing it in a database so then you have to make sure that you have it in the right format a standardized format from where you can start to analyze it but assuming all of these things are fine and you know the stars have aligned the luck is in your favor then you can start analysis of the data itself um so mainly i guess there would be two types of data right or even in terms of direct and indirect feedback from users as far as text is concerned one is feedback that they would be giving you directly through your product through your app uh maybe through a feedback survey so that's user generated direct data um then there would be indirect data which may be coming as a part of user research interviews that you are doing or maybe some of your own observations or insights from you know monitoring how people are doing moderated studies or just looking at their workflow um once you have all of that data and it's in a good format what i would do is i would end up using natural language processing um so what natural language processing means is that you take textual data which has been generated by humans that's why it's called natural language because it just you know evolves by how we speak and processing is of course the computer algorithm part of it for how can we try to understand what happens um some of the most common techniques that you would use are keyword mining which is just looking at um, certain keyword lists that you have maybe you are looking at particular workflows maybe you are looking at particular target users so just trying to see where those keywords come up and not just those exact keywords but also their synonyms or different forms like let's say for example you are trying to sell to software developers and you want to look for a keyword of coding but you must also look at a keyword of codes or code or coded so natural language processing helps you understand that entire web or network of words and see how you can find keywords um that's one another thing that you can do which i think a lot of you might have heard about a sentiment analysis 
trying to understand if people are reacting favorably to your product or not favorably. Oftentimes, it's also a mix, in which case they could say, let's say, two positive sentences about your product and one negative sentence. So then you have to find out what exactly are they referring to when in this negative sentence? Is it a particular feature? Is it an experience? So sentiment analysis helps you with understanding that. Um, then there's clustering. What happens is sometimes you don't really know what you're looking for, and you just have a huge uh, database of you know all of these comments. Clustering will help you identify can you form certain groups within this large data that are similar to each other? So it could be something, uh, topic modeling is one form of clustering. Let's say I have this huge data of user comments, but there's one group where people are talking about features that they want to see in the product. There's one group where they're talking about login issues with the product. There's one set where they're talking about integration capabilities. So all of these different clusters or groups can be formed using the clustering algorithm or topic modeling in specific. And finally, I think um, also kind of similar to keyword mining is named entity recognition, where you could see, let's say for example, I'm trying to look at reviews that people are leaving for IBM products, but I also know who our competitors are. And in that case, what I can do is I can use the named entity recognition to understand which are other companies, other products that my users are mentioning. Because oftentimes you're doing a competitive analysis and they would say, oh, you know, this is really good, but Google has this particular feature, which you don't have. Or Amazon has this different, you know, workflow, which is really nice and quick, but you don't have it. So just kind of doing that competitive analysis or a comparison of, you know, how your competitors' products are better than what you have, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the products, um, that's where named entity recognition helps. Um, so I would say these are kind of the most frequently used methods for me, but again, like I said, it really depends on your objective. Yeah, in fact, when it comes to natural language processing, I'm glad that you mentioned all those things. Google has uh, an offering in their Google Cloud, which is pretty helpful. But if someone wants to do that the hardcore way, they can also use, I guess, Python's GenSim and uh, like do a lot of sentiment analysis. And that is especially helpful when we are dealing with a lot of data. But I still have one question here. That is, how do you go about, you know, processing it in the sense? Um, are you dealing with one source of data at a time? That is maybe the social media comments about my this product. Or are you mixing different sources that social media comments and my chatbot, I put it into the processor and see what comes out. So what is this process like? Again, I think it really depends on how much data you have and what your objective is. If both of the sources are somewhat similar, let's say, for example, they have a similar length or a similar format, you can absolutely analyze them together, but also do an analysis on them separately to see if there are certain patterns that only exist for that data. For me, I think, at least as in terms of data scientists, the more the merrier, especially, you know, we have talked about triangulation of data is so important because maybe your chatbot is giving you a very different picture than what the users are telling you from in their feedback or in their surveys. And that's why I am a huge believer of combining as many data sources as you can. Of course, there's a limit. You don't want to be doing only data analysis your entire life. Uh, but I would say that the more you can get diversity in terms of data, because there are always these different things that you will find out some elements of surprise that you won't see when you look at just one particular data. And sometimes, uh, you know, you can, of course, go into the deep learning and all of that realm as well. But once you start heading towards that, you need to have really good tagged data. And for some of the teams that maybe do not want to get into coding or something hardcore, start with a very simple manual analysis, just do synthesis. And what that happens is that today you might not have enough data to feed into those models. But if you start doing a very consistent tagging and having really clean data in a year's time, you're going to have, you know, 365 days worth of data and then you can feed that into that model so always try to keep thinking about you know okay i don't have this today but a month down the line a year down the line what can this look like and how does that initial manual analysis help uh, in the end product if i get a lot of data for those nlps or uh, more uh, quantitative analysis like how can that help me with the end process 
Absolutely. So there are two aspects to this. Number one is that in the data science world, which I'm sure is it, uh, true for user research as well, we have these domain experts who understand the data way better than any of us do. Um, let's say, for example, you're dealing with medical data, then maybe a doctor or a medical professional will be able to tell you, oh, you know, these two fields, they mean the exact same thing. Or these two fields sound similar, look similar, but actually they are different. So number one is just in trying to understand the data because you need to have that background knowledge to make sure that your models are working properly. Otherwise, just, they're just going to, you know, give you some sort of nonsense. Um, that's helpful. The second one, what happens with a lot of these machine learning or data science models is that there is no way to understand if they are performing well or not. And that's where all of this tagged data set comes in being very helpful. So let's say, for instance, I have a set of 10 comments that I know have been tagged and they are absolutely accurate because us humans have done it. And then my model tries to also tag these 10 comments, but the model has a different tagging. So then I can compare and see, oh, the model is really good at detecting this category, but really bad at trying to understand this particular part. So I think just in the process of fine tuning and understanding the evaluation of the data science models, the tagging set is really helpful. Because if we don't know what is right, we're not gonna know if the model is performing rightly or not. Hmm. I'm so glad that you brought that point up because, you know, uh, there are so many automation tools or so many tools that have come up to help with analysis. But I don't know, maybe as a user research, it has somewhat got embedded in me to not trust at one go. As long as I do not analyze or at least gauge through on my own. In fact, even with Excel, I kid you not uh, I'm like okay is it actually working or am I just getting fooled I don't know I mean it could be our nature because even user researchers deal with a lot of uncertainty we don't know if we're going to find participants in the future for this study and if the um, step we are taking how valid or how strong is it so yeah I guess that is where it comes from. So thank you so much for bringing that point up that we have to test whether our models are working right or not. So it's better if we are doing our own manual analysis with whatever is that we can handle because natural language processing is like pages and pages of worth of data. But if we just cut out a portion of it and see um, maybe random portions of that entire data and do our own checks to see if how well is that working. So thank you so much for bringing that. Absolutely. And I'm glad you're doing that because I think that is so important for all of us not to blindly trust what an AI system or a model is telling. Always have that human in the loop. And I'm sure every day you hear so many cases of, you know, the AI being biased or there's some sort of problem in the data. Your model might work fine today, but maybe six months down the line, that data is outdated. It's not representative enough. So always, always a huge advocate of having humans involved and not completely leaving uh, machines or AI systems on their own because we've had some unfortunate incidents. Oh, God. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. Another thing, now that you have touched upon triangulation, that is what my next question was going to be. That is, how do we combine or sort of connect the dots when it comes to the qualitative analysis and the quantitative analysis so that we understand our users with utmost clarity because that's the kind of challenges I have faced. I mean, I have a survey response. Um, my first instinct is just to, you know, do a quick pie chart, graphs, whatever I can take out of it. And maybe for my open-ended questions, I go for a qualitative analysis, manually tagging, seeing what themes are emerging. But I feel that somewhere I'm not able to connect these two worlds. It's like I have this in Excel, this maybe in Dovetail, and I have tried to put it in and triangulate. But the journey of that triangulation is pretty steep. So in your experiences, how have you worked to make it smoother and connect the dots well in quant and qual data? 
Yeah, I think triangulation is so very important, right? Especially just the process of combining qualitative and quantitative because qualitative will help you understand why something is happening and then quantitative will tell you, okay, what exactly is happening? How many people are doing it? Um, honestly, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have faced, and I think which you also mentioned is having some sort of integration between these two tools, or if not, then maybe put all of that data in one tool itself where you can connect the dots. I think one of the um, examples that I've seen uh, a lot of user researchers do is you have the survey, but can you try to instrument and capture what the user was doing at the time of giving that survey? What page were they on? What workflow were they trying to accomplish? Because that itself will give you a lot of contextual understanding of, oh, this survey is not just you know a general feedback for the product. Maybe they were stuck at one particular point or maybe they are really frustrated by a certain workflow and that will help you understand only when you look at the behavioral data the activity data of what was happening when they gave you that survey so i think that is really important just having that sort of connection in terms of data what data can we capture along with the feedback but also having an integration in terms of here are the different tools can we integrate them so they overlap or can we start putting all of that data in one tool or at least doing some sort of an analysis in that one tool so you can kind of mix and match of you know okay this happened at this time point and this correlates with also this feedback that they've given in terms of the use cases, I think uh, it's really important because if you are just looking at what the data is telling you, you might not have a good understanding of what the users are trying to do or what they are thinking. So I think that's where you need to go and talk to the users to understand their mental model. Or the co converse is you're just talking to users and you're having you know these interviews, but you don't have the data. You don't know what the data is saying. And one case where it's really bad is especially for predicting future behavior. Because I think a lot of us overestimate how we are going to predict, uh, how we are going to behave in the future. And sometimes that's going to be wrong. Now, let's say, for example, I tell you, Hey, uh, Sweekriti, your product is cool, but I want to get an email notification for every time that a user sends me a reply. Let's see, hypothetically. And you're like, okay, great. The user wants this. Grishma is an important user. She's paying us a lot of money. Let's go and put this into production. And then you start implementing that feature. But what I realize is that I get 1,000 users replying to me in a single day. And now I'm getting 1,000 emails for every time a user is doing an activity. And now I'm coming back to you, Sweetkriti. I hate this. I'm getting 1,000 emails just from your system. I can't get any work done. And then you kind of realize, right, that I thought it would be great to get notified, but maybe I don't want a notification on every single event. Maybe I want a digest or a daily newsletter which says, hey, at the end of the day, here are all of the user activities that happen. So you just have that one crisp email instead of doing everything. So I think there's also this element of not completely trusting what your users say, but kind of having your own insights, your judgment, your observations from how you have seen them interact with your system, and also the kind of, you know, activities and metrics that you have captured in your system, which really brings us to the point of why triangulation is very important. Wow. One thing I really liked is that the context that you talked about. So the survey tool that we used was Hotjar and Hotjar is a tool one can use to run surveys on their website and they had this feature of you know when do you want that pop-up to come is it at when they're leaving or in the middle of the session or just when they have entered and uh, also there was a feature of you know the um, like the activity being recorded in some way so yeah I never thought about it that way, like putting in the context. Yeah, in user interviews, absolutely. I considered that when they are giving interviews at school, how their behavior is different from when they are at home. They are more open when they are at home. They are a little stressed when they are at school because they have to deal with a lot of things. So yeah, but this context thing in survey is really interesting i don't know why it didn't hit me before thank you so much for saying that and uh, yeah connecting the dots i like i don't know i sort of feel validated that you also feel that same problem um it's like i'm not the only one facing it so yeah and uh, obviously we are very wary of 
whenever we ask users in fact we have stopped asking users will you use this or what would you like to see in that or if we ask what would you like to see in that we take it with a pinch of salt it's like okay they are saying this but we don't know so yeah thank you for sharing that story that's pretty eye opening yeah absolutely and it's actually a cognitive bias called introspective illusion which makes you feel that what you're thinking your thoughts have way more weightage than they should and your actions have lesser weightage but you kind of do the opposite when you're looking at others you pay more attention to what they are doing instead of what they are saying so it's kind of fascinating how all of these biases come into play mm-hmm, absolutely and uh, you know we just used to see how children are using our product and what do they like and because they were in such a comfortable and natural environment they were so honest and it helped us a lot because uh, those were just uh, products that could be quickly changed or making changes and it was very easy so if we were seeing a pattern that this is what children are not liking or this is what doesn't make sense to them we would be really quick to change it and that really helped so yeah this action thing is helpful and that's that's the old age wisdom also that action speaks louder than words <laughs> so yeah one thing that you know large organizations have the privilege of is research operations having a team dedicated to user research operations maintaining a repository and other tasks that might sound tedious or are, are just so invisible but because someone is working in the background things are happening but many organizations in fact small organizations do not have that kind of privilege or resources it's the one who is doing interviews has to maintain the repository has to make sure that it is going out to everyone so one person is juggling all the things and i have been that person what all can such organizations do so as to maybe set a foundation for a solid user research operations team in the future and also sort of soothe or make their task of this operation smoother because you have dealt with it on a large scale what are the principles or foundations that you could catch that okay this is really important for a good user operations user research operations team to manage this is honestly something that i think a lot of companies are facing because you rightly mentioned right not everybody has the time resources money available to invest in a proper you know complete uh, large team of research operations um i would say number one definitely keep having a constant communication with your business leaders with your stakeholders and trying to get their buy in for why research operations is important and give them the instance of you know you could have 10 researchers 100 researchers 1000 researchers putting in their best work and putting in a lot of time and money to really get those insights and you know findings but if nobody's going to read them if nobody's going to use them what's going to happen the researchers are going to feel that they are not getting recognition their work has no impact and they are going to leave and they're going to be very unhappy right so i think just kind of this a bit of an organizational mindset change into understanding okay we need to really preserve the researchers we have and the good work that they are doing and then also see that we do need research operations to advocate that work to spread the good word around the wonderful work they are doing so continuously having that conversation you know in the background uh in terms of what researchers or you know anybody kind of adjacent to researchers can do I think first and foremost is research the researchers. What is the biggest pain point they are facing today? Is it around recruitment? Is it around managing participants? Is it around scheduling sessions? Is it around not having a repository? Is it around not even having enough data instrumentation in place to start understanding what quant data is available? Or is it more of okay, we are just a lot of junior researchers. We don't have any senior researcher. who is experienced who is coming in with a lot of expertise so just trying to identify what is the single biggest pain point your researchers your teams have and then kind of trying to work from there okay what is the basic minimum thing that i can do 
Um, you can also, you know, maybe have uh, people who work on a contract basis or as a consultants come in and step and try to help you. Maybe that's one thing you could do. Another thing you can do is collaborate with other teams. Let's say, for example, you are not capturing any of the data that you need, but maybe the marketing team is capturing some user data. Maybe the sales team has feedback on how the users, why the users are buying your product or why they are going towards a different competitor's product. Just trying to do this collaboration of, okay, we might not have the data today, but let's see if there are other teams that have data that we can use. So trying to do that cross collaboration and breaking silos, I think is really important as well. Thirdly, kind of what I mentioned, have that forward facing uh, vision of, okay, I do not have the data today, but what data would I like to have six months from now? And how do I start working towards that? And then work with you know the instrumentation teams of how you can start collecting that data. Because of course, that's gonna take a few months. And then when you're at that point, think about, okay, one year from now, if this is the data I have for six months, what kind of analysis can I do? How can I store this data? How can I use this data? And take all of these sort of you know projections and vision mapping planning and again go back to your leaders of if you give us you know two research operations members we can actually do this in six months instead of waiting one year and then that's just going to make our team more successful because the work we are doing is actually going to go into the roadmap and a lot of the other teams that we work with are going to start and recognize the value of user research even more instead of you know some teams they feel oh, oh we just need to like check a box of yes we did user research it's done but them actually understanding and respecting the craft of Oh, this is actually really eye-opening. I never thought our users thought about this. Let's go on the roadmap. Let's see what we can do to make that experience better. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say there's any one particular thing that you could do. I think it's a bit of trying to push the ball in all of these different aspects with getting that buy-in from your leadership, from your stakeholders, collaborating with other product teams to see what data they have, and then finally thinking about what data you want to capture. What is the state you want to be in um, five uh, months, six months, 10 months, years down the line, and trying to see how you can work towards that. Absolutely. The good thing about whatever you said is that when I started out, I did not even have an idea of there is a different vertical as user research operations. Had I known about it or be remotely aware, I would have, you know, started some minimal work in that direction so that whenever my stakeholders feel confident in me because our team was new you know going to that point of convincing your stakeholders requires a lot of wins and consistent wins and winning that confidence so that if i was aware of this vertical then i would have started some minimal work at the very first day or maybe the very first month and then when i had won the confidence of my stakeholders that you know because of user research this is what all has happened it helped in creating our roadmap new features then i could pitch it better because I have been doing that work in very small steps and because of that I have a user research operation teams and now I can focus more on analysis understanding the users rather than scheduling maintaining the repository so yeah that is a helpful insight and whatever you said makes a lot of sense. And that is so important, I think, just gaining that trust and confidence, right? Exactly what you said, something that we at IBM or at least our team does is that ask for forgiveness, don't seek permission. Try to do whatever you can, even if it's a prototype, even if it's a very small, uh, you know, inside repository, whatever you can do, work with the tools that you have, if you truly believe in it, and then go to your leaders, go to them, say that, hey, this is what I did as a side project, as a very, you know, part-time thing, because we don't have a lot of data, we don't have infrastructure, we don't have the resources. But if you invest in this, then imagine we can do this at a much bigger scale for the entire company. And we can't, we'll take much lesser time to do this. So just kind of giving them that incentive of see what the future could look like if I, one person can do this in a small amount of time. I think just gaining that trust and confidence is so, so important. Absolutely. Because user research is, I don't know, not so accepted or not present there in every organization, we have to work a bit harder than other teams like 
something like marketing it's like given now that every organization will have a marketing team until and unless you are a company like zerodha and you have this certain ethos that you know what i don't think we are going to go that way uh, but something like marketing has gained the trust of so many organizations in less amount of time but with that when it comes to user research it is still gaining that confidence and more and more companies are adopting it but then again it's not present everywhere coming to our next question again it is <laughs> dedicated to small organizations because i have worked in one and it's not a, even about the organization but working in a small user research team i wouldn't have a dedicated data scientist working with me on my problems so in that case as a user researcher what can i do to use the principles of data science or maybe some tools that can help me understand my users better maybe some small things or even large things which you feel that okay i guess a user researcher could start from here in data science and better the quality of their analysis this is something i think more and more user researchers are realizing right if they have those quant skills or statistics knowledge or a bit of data science or programming knowledge you will be at the cutting edge of what your field is doing and you'll also have a lot of favorability in terms of you know when you go to seek a new job people will want to work with you because you have that well rounded approach to it um firstly i think is just start with the tools that you have right even if you don't have the budget to get a new tool see what tools are available to you can you maybe do some coding on the side just to you know kind of get a basic understanding of trying to automate certain tasks maybe if you're not interested in programming use no code tools use low code tools there are so many tools on the market like airtable dovetail enjoyhq and so so many more see if you can work with those teams uh, even like your vendor or you know see what capabilities they have i know for example airtable has a lot of really friendly automations that you can use instead of trying to do some task manually 100 times maybe you can set an automation in place that is integrated with you know your slack or your email and just try to get that administrative part out of it so definitely explore what tools are available to you and if you do have an interest in coding see if that's something you can pick up starting with a language like python is usually easier because it's a little simpler to kind of understand and to write in if not you can look at different tools that are available that allow you to do the same thing like for example the tagging and synthesis there are tools that will do that or there are tools that will build a word cloud so again you don't need any programming for that you just use those ready made tools having a good understanding of statistics i know as user researchers you obviously do uh, are involved in statistics a lot but just kind of being an expert in statistics and understanding okay do we are we hitting a sample size of what we require do we have significant results that we feel confident in if not can we look at some other sources of data what are the other things we can do to make sure that our confidence level in these findings is high definitely collaborate with other teams like i said there might be other teams doing data science there might be other teams doing analytics maybe they are doing marketing research so collaborate with these other teams and try to learn from them have these knowledge sharing sessions of hey i'll tell you about user research you tell me about marketing research or i'll tell you about you know how to do a kano study why don't you tell me about how you are doing something uh, that's related to statistics or t test intervals so just kind of having that collaborative environment i think is really helpful to keep learning from one another and finally honestly i think there is absolutely no substitute for talking to your users talk to your users it doesn't have to be something that is a part of your job description it doesn't have to be a very formal uh, program set into place it could be just as simple as you know if you have a good relationship with a particular user with a particular customer just ask them hey would you be willing to chat with me for 30 minutes i want to understand how you use our product i want to understand what are the issues that you hit or maybe talk to potential customers hey i want to understand why you would not use our product or why you would use a competitor's product what are the features you like over there so i think honestly just talking to your users is the first thing you should do because there's really no substitute to that but also definitely look at if you can enhance your data analysis skills your programming skills your understanding of statistics because those are the things that will happen if not then there's always those low code and no code tools in the market so that's like the bare minimum start with using that and then see if that interests you maybe you can delve further into all of this yeah absolutely there is one very practical aspect to it which i guess you pointed out that 
people will favor you if you have that quant edge and it might not be even that useful in some cases but the thing is that our world especially the corporate world and our pms and stakeholders have so much become trustworthy of numbers like they always want to hear some metric some number and that's the language that they understand better or trust in better i mean that is why there is some hindrance or not a very head on approach when it comes to call user research because we are in a very number number world so maybe that could be also a way of gaining the trust of such stakeholders and then adding that qualitative perspective that you know this is what numbers could tell me and as you see i have represented the data and used these these tools how much has it helped but at the same time these were the nuances that i wouldn't have gotten if it weren't for the user interviews or if it weren't for talking to my users so yeah that is really helpful in that very practical aspect as well. yeah and it's funny you mentioned that because i think in the data world it's kind of we are we have the opposite problem where it's all just numbers and that's why you might have heard of this field of data visualization data storytelling data journalism coming up because people can look at numbers but unless you understand what to do with those numbers or how to interpret them it's pointless right which is why data scientists and journalists they come and they tell you the story of okay you know we have this user who has this issue and this is how you know the metrics are being reflected because our users don't feel happy about this part of our product or because our users don't understand the words we are using so just kind of that um, combination again of the qualt and quant of okay these are what the metrics say but when we spoke to users this is what they are saying because honestly the human mind is just conditioned to remembering stories right that's how we are function we get and learned a lot of stories when we were as kids and even now just kind of the whole uh, generation to generation passing of knowledge right we have like these different stories and fables with a moral ending because that's what we remember we might not remember numbers at the end of the day but we might remember oh that one person that person really hated our product because it was so frustrating for them to because we kept logging them out every 30 minutes so those kind of things i think stay with you and they give a more personal and relatable approach yes i understand executives need to see dashboards need to see metrics need to see quadrants and see if it's going going up or down yes that's important we need those metrics to understand but there's also that human relatable aspect that i think we need need to capitalize on as well then i guess i should thank data scientists for actually realizing this gap between the language users speak and the language companies speak because i was wondering that you know when did this happen in terms like storytelling and data story emerging in the corporate world because when i was growing up i had this feeling about you know it's all about numbers it's all about excel but now that i'm working i actually read posts of what's the user story what's the day in users life like and i wonder where did it come from so now i guess i have the answers it's like data scientists maybe pointed out that loophole that we have this missing piece and that's why users are not understanding so yeah thank you so much absolutely and um, i think one of the talks that i usually give is on how data science and user research can be best friends and one of my first few slides is just this data scientist and user research talking to each other which i think i was also in you know a few years ago where the data scientist thinks oh user research is just care about users they don't care about the business metrics they don't care about you know the business being successful or not and the other side user research so it's like oh data scientists just care about numbers and having you know good models they don't really care about the users but the funny fact is that both of them do care about the user and the business right but it's just that we have such different approaches to doing what we do like the qual quant and you know like the high scale versus like doing more manual synthesis it's it just creates that bridge where there actually isn't i think data scientists and user researchers are very alike they just haven't discovered it yet and it's a funny story that how i got to know about the strangulation part or um, this meeting halfway of content call because earlier as well i only started with qualitative research because i didn't have expertise or basic skills in quant but then i developed those because i felt the need and that need arised from a different domain as well it was for investing and stuff like that where 
generalizing the particular or particularizing the general can have catastrophic effects so that line i read it in a book changed my entire perspective on user research as well so yeah this is i guess one should remember this that do not do these two things and that can only happen if quant and qual or teams work in sync and meet halfway through so coming to our next question since you started working with user research team and as a data scientist you brought in a different world altogether and uh, as you have already mentioned that you know data scientists and user research have so different opinions about each other's work but when you st- actually start working you realize it's so similar so what are other perspectives that you have added or maybe eliminated after you started working in the user research teams or with the user research teams how have they helped you what you added and what you eliminated yeah and i think it's been almost 3 years now since i joined the user research org and uh, honestly when this job was offered to me it was a bit of a question mark of you know we have a lot of data we're not really doing anything with it i guess you'll be able to help us understand that data but that's that was my entire job description but it's on it like an interesting challenge in me getting to work with user researchers which doesn't happen usually otherwise right so i went all in and uh, the first year i just spent a lot of time trying to talk to different research and product teams and telling them hey i'm a data scientist this is what i do because a lot of times their initial reaction is like we have a data scientist yes but what do you do like how exactly are you going to help us where do you fit into our workflow and you know our day to day um so which is why i kind of went on to almost the store of you know uh the first year where i'm saying okay this is me as a data scientist this is what my data science processing pipeline looks like this is the kind of data i deal with these are the kind of questions i answer these are how i work on the models and this is the kind of uh, output you can expect you know whether it's a finding or an insight or a dashboard or just some sort of a script so just kind of giving them that knowledge of what data science is and isn't and just trying to make sure that they are not thinking about you know how a lot of times in media ai is hyped off you know it's going to take away our jobs it's going to destroy the world but just giving them a more realistic understanding of as a data scientist i'm not here to take your job i'm not going to destroy the world but i'm trying to make your life easier and see if we can scale uh, any of the analysis and any of the insights uh, finding that we can do so i think that was definitely one and of course during the this process it was uh, enlightening for me as well to understand because i had a very basic idea of okay this is what user research is but just trying to get a better understanding of what their day to day looks like their workflows involved what are their pain points their challenges um that was really helpful for me as well and honestly i think and we kind of touched upon this a bit uh, before right we are saying about the same things but just the kind of terms and the language we use is different so that's when i started understanding okay these are the kind of terms i should use this is what they mean when they say these things and then they also try to understand how to work with me or you know what are the things they need to provide me um they can't just come with me saying you know we want to do this but let's have a discussion about what data is there what processes are in place what do you want the outcome to look like so that was really uh, helpful for me uh what else did i learn um talking to users i think as a data scientist i wasn't really having a lot of exposure to the end users the product users um that was something i really uh, liked and i understood the value of that because oftentimes even like uh, they could be saying something on an email or in your feedback survey but when you're actually talking to them face to face you can see their body language you can see the way they are speaking things right maybe the texture says yeah this feature is good but maybe when they're talking to you in person this feature is really good or i hate this feature i cannot tolerate it so there's a lot of nuances i think that you also can miss out on in written text language uh, versus you know verbal language but also respecting and valuing your users time and that comes with the whole portion of incentives as a b2c user maybe the incentive for your user is getting a good user experience maybe having a quicker and more efficient workflow but this gets a little more tricky when it's a b2b user because then your target users could be multinational executives could be people in really high up positions how do you convince them to meet with you 
So I think you need to have an incentive process where you say, okay, hey, we're going to offer you a gift card, which is worth, you know, whatever dollars. Uh, so you are compensated for your time because they're obviously taking out some time from their daily work life and, you know, having that conversation with you. So I think that's one interesting thing that I learned that it is important to talk to users, but also what is the user's benefit in talking to you? So just kind of having that two-way interaction of, you know, it needs to be benefit beneficial for all of the parties. Um, I think we already talked about triangulation. That was definitely something very important. I think as data scientists, sometimes you can be so holed up into just looking at the data set you have or the data that you are exposed to, but not trying to see what other product teams are collecting that data. And I think it's even more valuable because from the user's perspective, they are getting onto multiple calls with different teams and telling the same things again and again. And they're telling the product manager, hey, I have issue with you know XYZ in your product. And then telling the support team, hey, I have an issue with your XYZ in your product. And then telling the user researcher, I don't like the XYZ part of your product. And then software engineers about who are trying to also you know, assist the support engineers, at which point you're like, I have told five different people in your company, I have XYZ issue. Why are you asking me the same questions again and again? Do you all not talk? Like, are you different companies? So I think what that's another thing where that cross collaboration and breaking down silos comes into play. Let's look at all of the data all of these different teams have, and let's look at all the different things that these users have told us, you know, in the interactions we've had, and let's try to work work as one company as one team and capitalize on on that because i've seen this happen where the users get frustrated right like we also get frustrated we have had so many experiences about i already told you this why are you asking me this again and again you know you like you have those uh phone calls for your credit cards or like your gas bills and you have spoken to someone and they transfer you and then you start again from scratch that's very frustrating and imagine at, for that, we're just at that, you know, B2C level, but at the B2B level, these are people who probably have like multi-billion dollar deals, who have a lot of money, who have a lot of time invested in you. And is that the treatment you're going to give them? Not really. Uh, which is, I think, another thing I really learned from user researchers is that work to improve not just the user experience of your product, but also the user experience of the user with your company with how they're giving you feedback and how you're incorporating that feedback. Also try to get back to the users, close that loop of, yes, we listened to you, your opinion is important, and that's why we're actually making this change in our product in this next release. So I think just having that continuous conversation and telling them that their words mattered, again, was something that as a data scientist, I didn't really know about. It was something that user researchers taught me. And then finally, I think having the right metrics in place, because I think it's so important to game the metrics. For example, I know of this, uh, one of the social media platforms where one of their metrics was the number of messages sent daily and what they instead started doing was that they had automated messages being sent out daily so that's is that the right metric number of messages or do you want to see the number of messages that have been sent by users because you could just have an automated chatbot spamming you with a thousand messages every day and on the metrics you're great but think about how that's impacting the user's experience that's not something they want so that's again which i think is just something that we as user researchers data scientists product managers always struggle with right like what is the right metric to have in place and be flexible to change if a certain metric is not working that's okay let's let's go and try another metric let's experiment with something else and see how all of that happens uh yeah i would say these these are all of the things work together as a team triangulate look at different sources of data talk to your users try to improve their user experience with your company as a whole very very important things whatever points that you are talking about that is what we have discussed previously with my guests is that there are multiple touch points in a company. It's not just about your product. It is also about the phone call that they are making and the emails that they are getting. And now getting to user interviews also becomes a part of that touch point. So we have to be sure that they are having a good experience because we are dealing with a very sensitive issue here. And then again, that is why repository and communication becomes important. 
because this could be also the case that you know everyone wants to talk to the users and we can have a finite pool of users and because there is no communication some team can be independently scheduling something and the other team can be independently scheduling something and it's all a chaos so thank you for sharing that it is a good heads up to think about and that's actually something we also faced one of our challenges when we were trying to establish our participant management panel was that we have all of these different teams who are trying to contact the same set of users again and again. So how do we make sure that we are not over fatiguing them or making them so frustrated that they want to opt out of our panel, which is why we started recording. Okay, when was the last time we had a contact? If it has been in the last 30 days or last three months, whatever, you know, your time limit is do not contact them. Please them on a do not contact list. And once that time is up, let's bring them back again. But yeah, that's a very valid point and something I think more and more research teams need to keep thinking about. We have only a certain set of users. How do we treat them? Just treat them the way you would want to be treated. Like we get annoyed when we get those marketing calls or spam calls every year, you know, every day, but just see how you can make that a better experience for your users. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Grishma. It was a phenomenal and really good session. I mean, I got to learn so much about data science and how it is implemented in user research. In fact, I don't think data is anything without research. And all the science that you're doing is the scientific research when we are in our lab, maybe having a controlled uh, environment and then an experimental environment. Here as well, we deal with that. But then again, you said that, you know, organizations have to develop their data maturity. Trust me, they want every kind of data. It's just when it comes to research, uh, the steps are not so firm. So the points that you bring in, build a case for research, it can actually be implemented and we can see tremendous results. So thank you so much. Absolutely. I think over the course of our conversation, we've discovered, you know, what are the pros and cons of just data science and the pros and cons of just user research. And I think there are just so many case studies out there where you see the, you know, the weaknesses of certain methods and the strengths of certain methods. And it's all about these kind of rounding, how well-rounded can you be and how can you minimize the errors by trying to get, you know, multiple method mix, which is of course mixed methods that you all do in user research or just combining different sources of data at the end of it i really think collaboration is the name of the game whether that's about collaborating with data sources collaborating with product teams collaborating with users collaborating amongst yourself so i'll say that's like my word for the day collaboration yeah and i'm really glad that you talked about minimal risk uh, in fact whenever it's about research i like to target as risk mitigation and because risk is so abstract and Above that, we have mitigation, something that people can't see or feel. Like if you have done something, it's, you know, people can see it and there are numbers to support it. But when you're mitigating something, when you're subtracting it out of the system, it's harder to prove it. And like no one is really there to thank you. So yeah, thank you for bringing that point up that risk mitigation is a thing, whether you realize it or not. Um, Thank you so much for your time. It was a lovely conversation. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, it was really uh, enlightening for me as well to hear the kind of experiences and challenges um, you have had in your experience, you know, working as part of a smaller organization. I hope that more and more people tune in and listen to your podcast and you're doing some wonderful work with trying to spread the good word about user research because that is definitely, definitely needed in the society. And then hopefully more and more people can convince uh, their companies to have research operations and Hopefully one day we'll have more and more data scientists and user researchers working together too. So thank you for all the work you're doing.